This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. This has already been a phenomenal day. Hopefully we can make it even better. We are going to be talking with Daniel Zinn, who tomorrow, or even what we would call really late tonight, maybe a little bit after midnight, depending on the weather, is going to attempt to swim across Lake Erie. At least a part of it. It's a 30-kilometer swim. And Daniel Zinn is going to do this. We will discuss why and how, because he's got a really good reason for doing it. This isn't just, you know, Saturday's coming. Eh, We could get groceries. Or I could swim across part of one of the Great Lakes. I think I'll go Great Lakes. Okay. That's not what this is. He's doing it for a big reason. We'll talk with him. We're going to talk with Justin Reinecke, and he's he's somebody who tells a very interesting story. We have a chicken processing plant that's going to be opening in kind of our neighborhood, just south of London. And Justin is somebody who has worked in not that kind of a factory or plant, but in a slaughterhouse in Manitoba. And he's gone through an interesting course of life where he hunted, he fished, and then he got this job. And there are a number of reasons why he got that job. He will go into them. But they kind of changed his perspective. And we're not here to hold up posters. That's not what this is. But this is an experience. And I always love getting other people's experiences. Don't you? Don't you love hearing life experiences and how they change you? So lots to do on the show today. The Lake Erie Challenge goes this way. Swim from Long Point Lighthouse to Port Dover Lighthouse. Eh, it's a mere 30 kilometers. Who's in? Well, our next guest is Daniel Zinn is going to attempt to do this tomorrow. And he's been nice enough to join us today to talk all about it. Daniel, how are you doing? Good, good. How about yourself? Not too bad. You know, we probably would expect that right now you would be in some hyperbaric chamber or you would at least not be where you are. You're at work. I I am. I am. Unfortunately, I have to work. Um, uh, It would be ideal if I could be at home resting uh, in a hyperbaric chamber, as you mentioned, but uh, unfortunately, that is not the case. But that's okay. I'm ready for it. That is absolute dedication, though. Where do you work? I am a high school teacher. Okay, and what what did you teach today? I'm teaching history this semester, so I'm at North Park Collegiate in Brantford. And maybe on Monday you'll be able to teach them the history of uh, Great Lakes crossings. You got it. (laughs) You will hopefully have a whole lot of experience with it. Now, let's talk about how this all came together or even started. Take us back to the beginning. Um, Well, uh, I kind of, back in the winter, um, I was thinking of a challenge for myself, some sort of goal to set to kind of keep me in shape and and just a year and a half prior I kind of discovered and fell in love with the sport of open water swimming um and I was gradually previous summers increasing my distances and was starting to set new benchmarks for myself and um I absolutely love open water swimming I love being in in the environment the natural world and 
the longer I'm in there, the better. So it just seemed like a good goal to set in terms of a distance where I could <laughs> maximize being in the water and also push my limits. And when I approached um, one of the other open water swimmers in our community who has done some crossings himself about this idea, um, he said he'd be more than willing to help me out. And, uh, and his name is Josh Reed. And then also connected me or told me to look into doing this for a fundraiser. Um, so he connected me with uh, Lake Erie Guardians and Canadian Freshwater Alliance. I did some research on it and found with my research that this is something that I totally identify with. Um, so especially because I not only teach history, but I also teach geography. And as a geography teacher, this kind of like practice what you preach. Um, it ties in perfectly to all the things I believe in. So things like keeping those lakes nice and clean, which right now, as we know, the lake in Lake Erie is having some issues, algae blooms, the amount of plastic that we see in freshwater lakes everywhere is absolutely staggering. So those are things that you've been conscious of for a long time then. Absolutely, absolutely. Right now, I mean, Canadian Freshwater Alliance is for all of our uh, freshwater watersheds throughout Canada, but um, in particular, Lake Erie is... Uh, getting hit with just some uh, um, terrible stuff right now. So you mentioned uh, in the southwest corner of uh, Lake Erie, you have the blue-green toxic algae, which uh, depletes the oxygen stores in the water, uh, kills the ecosystem, um, kills families' dogs that run into the water. Um, it's terrible on your skin. Um, it creates rashes. Um, it's not good for drinking in your tap water. So the city of Toledo in the United States has had some serious issues with it. Um, and in fact, it's banned um turning on your tap uh on years past uh then you also have the eastern basin more towards where port dover is you have another form of algae which isn't toxic but still has dull manner of issues it's called uh, cladophora and uh, what it basically does is it fouls the water lines um it degrades the ecosystem and it clogs water intake pipes um so that is a huge issue uh with various municipalities who are struggling to maintain their uh, water intake system infrastructure. Um, then you also have the plethora of invasive species in our Great Lakes, not to mention just Lake Erie, but all of our Great Lakes. We have over 100 plus, plus, plus uh, invasive species in our Great Lakes uh, water systems and uh, the wetlands and the water itself and on the surrounding land. And then last but not least, you have the plastics um, and the bioaccumulation of plastics. So um, all of our crap that gets out into the freshwater systems, little fish um, and microorganisms feed on that, and the bigger fish eat that, and then we eat those bigger fish. Uh, it's called bioaccumulation. And then whatever doesn't get uh, put up into bioaccumulation will eventually filter its way into the oceans. So all the Great Lakes feed into the Atlantic Ocean, and then that just adds to or exacerbates the issue of microplastics and plastics as a whole in the oceans as well. Daniel's in joining us. Daniel is about to take on the Lake Erie Challenge. And for information about what Daniel was just talking about, more information about the swim, you can go to lakeerichallenge.ca. Daniel is going to attempt the 30-kilometer crossing from Long Point to Port Dover coming up tomorrow. So 30 kilometers in the water. How long is this going to take you? Uh, approximately eight to ten hours, probably more closer to ten. Um, especially if I'm battling um, some of the conditions. So right now the forecast models 
are not in my favor with the wind going against us, which will create some waves and resistance and current. Um, but probably closer to 10 hours. Okay. And this was something that you had set out to do. You've been training and, and got ready just a couple of Saturdays ago on August 24th. What happened on that day? Uh, uh, weather gods wasn't uh, favorable for us, and uh, the waves were um, a little too scary and a little too risky. So uh, we decided to call it and fall back onto our inclement weather date, which was this one. Well, it's fantastic that you have seen that water and said, you know what, instead of just kiboshing this completely, we're going to do this. And you're doing it for such a great cause. What kind of reaction do you get from people when when you don't just talk about the fact that you're going to swim 30K, but you talk to them about why you're doing it, and you mentioned some of the information you just gave to us? Um, I can't, I get a lot of, like, are you nuts? <laughs> Um, especially when I tell them that, uh, more recently I'm telling them that I'm probably going to be launching off, uh, sometime in the early morning hours. So most of my swim will be, uh, in the cast of darkness. Um, I get a lot of more crazy looks. Um, and to be honest, as I'm getting closer to, I really don't know what I signed myself up for, <laughs> but I'm in it now. Um, and, uh, and then when I get for talking to them further about some of the issues, um, you know, it, I think it really touches home. Um, it, it's a it's an issue uh, with our the health of our watersheds. We use it every single day um, in more ways than we even re- realize. Um, and it's so so important. We're, we're literally living beside blue gold, but we don't treat it like blue gold, and that's that's that makes me sad. And it's unfortunate. That's well said. Now you have an opportunity being a high school teacher teaching geography. What do you notice from your students when topics like this come up? Is it like they've never heard anything like it before, or are they fiercely ready to make a difference? Uh, there's always some that have some base knowledge, um, and then there's others who uh, are just completely floored. They just have no idea, no idea. Um, uh, they don't really know uh, outside of their town that the world just kind of falls off the face of a cliff, right? So um, when they walk into Greenland geography, for example, it's a kind of a really good opportunity to kind of open up their eyes um, and and get them connected with things that affect them uh, every day and will affect them continuously if nothing changes. And sometimes you ignite a spark plug and it gets kids really passionate and enthused. Um, and other times you just hope that it does. Um, but it's a great opportunity. And then again, it's kind of like that practice what you teach. And, uh, it's a great thing I could pull into the classrooms and stories that I can, an experience I can pull into the classroom down the road. Yeah. I mean, there aren't very many people who get an opportunity to practice what they teach. It's such a great strategy, but you've got to be out there doing stuff and stuff that in this case is not easy. A 30K swim, and you mentioned you're going to start pretty early tomorrow. You'll be ending at the Port Dover Lighthouse. Is there kind of an estimated time if someone wanted to pack a picnic lunch and and kind of wait for you to arrive? Is there a schedule as to when you plan to start and, and hopefully when you'll finish? So we're going to finalize the departure time uh, sometime this evening uh, as we get the most uh, consistent and most accurate uh, weather forecast. Right now we're aiming based off yesterday's models because I haven't had a chance to talk with everyone yet today, um, sometime between uh, midnight and 2 a.m., um, which will have us arrive at the beach hopefully sometime mid-morning. Okay.
So instead of picnic lunch, pack a picnic breakfast and head down to the Port Dover Lighthouse, and you can cheer Daniel as he comes in. You can check out more information at LakeErieChallenge.ca. Daniel, we'll give you a couple of days to recover, but can we get in touch next week and find out how it went? Absolutely. Well, thank you for this. Thank you for what you are doing, because this is absolutely tremendous. And it's, uh, it's something that most people will never have the courage to do, and you are doing it. So best of luck. Have a great swim tomorrow. Thank you so much. Daniel Zinn, swimming across Lake Erie, the Lake Erie Challenge. So go to lakeeriechallenge.ca. Right now... We want to tell a story. Factory farming is is something that you hear but don't ever have to comprehend unless you're directly involved. When you hear factory farming, what does it mean to you? I don't know. It means like a big corporation has taken over farming. That? Is that what it means? Close. But we never really have the opportunity to dig into what goes on. We get to meet somebody right now who has been able to. And... It changed his outlook on a lot of things. Please welcome to London Live, Justin Reinick. Justin is currently a bricklayer, but has worked in a slaughterhouse, has worked in factory farming, and is now an animal liberation activist. Justin, how are you doing on this Friday afternoon? I'm awesome today. Good. Good to hear. You're somebody who can provide a pretty unique perspective on some things and one of those things happens to be life as an employee at a factory farm or life actually working in a slaughterhouse how did you even get a job in either of those places yeah so uh, it started out with uh, i kind of dropped out of high school uh and was looking for work and um, there's not a lot of work you can get without a high school education, besides for farming is one of them. And, um, yeah, I got into farming for, you know, for money and just to support myself. Because um, I was living on my own at uh, 17. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what got me into the industry at the time. Did you know what you were getting into in terms of did you know what you were about to see or what you were about to have to do before you started the job uh no not really not really at all i kind of like i grew up as a normal you know canadian kid going fishing and hunting and you know doing all those things you would normally do so i mean um the slaughter of animals was, was normalized uh throughout my childhood um as it is with most people these days and um yeah so i kind of when i got into that situation i just treated it as any other survival situation where you know this is what we're doing to get food and um yeah just followed the people who um were older than me and learned from their experiences what can you tell us about what a typical day on the job is of somebody working in a factory farm let's say yeah, so, um, you know, I would start off, uh, you know, with uh, feeding animals in the morning. All the animals, uh, the lights would turn on, and depending on your barn size, you'd have, uh, you know, three to 5,000 animals all screaming, um, you know, for their food, and then you have to hit a switch, um, and then all their food drops, uh, and then they're all silent, <laughs> and they're eating. So, um, and then you would do your walkthroughs and see if there's any injuries and make sure everybody's standing up. Um, if they're not standing up, you would uh, slap them on the back 
with like uh, like one of the canes that they would use, a plastic cane, and uh, you know get them up in the morning because everybody needs to get up. And uh, yeah, so your day starts and it's very busy. Uh, it's about ten hours. Um, a lot of uh, in the morning, uh, you'll do a lot of your breeding, so you'll do a lot of the you know raping of sows, um, artificially inseminating them with catheters. Um, and then, um, you know, in the afternoons and late mornings, you'll, uh, move into your farrowing departments and help out with the birthing areas, uh, where there's castrating of animals with no, with no pain medicines, uh, clipping of tails with no pain medicines, and, um, tattooing as well. And then you would usually finish your day with some pressure washing, um, pressure washing and disinfecting the, the, the rooms. Now, you've mentioned some words there that probably caught the ear of everybody listening, one being, you called it the raping of sows and then the use of no pain medication. Uh, can can you describe just, you know, why you choose to use those words? Yeah, because we use a lot of euphemisms. Um, we don't like to call things what it is with these industries. And if we were to replace the animal for a human, uh, we would call it rape. Um, so if that's how I like to look at it, because these animals are sentient beings. And um, if we, uh, you know, we think about all their feelings and you can see it when they're scared and, you know, when they're hungry, you know, they have all the emotions that a normal sentient being would have. So if we just replace them with humans, you know, that's what we would call it. And yet you went into this being someone who you mentioned would hunt, would fish, you know, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. This, when when did you kind of look at this and say, wait a minute, this... This is a little different. You you are feeling the yeah. emotions. You are seeing the fear in the animals. You 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 are experiencing those things. Yeah. So I was in a really bad car accident in 2017 where I almost passed away. Um, a lady uh, didn't stop at an intersection on a highway and took us out around 90 kilometers. And um, you know I you know when you wake up from a situation like that and you don't remember anything, you know you could have not gone home that day from work and you really um, think about your children. And, uh, you know, I my had cancer in my family also at the time of my car accident. So I was going through um, cancer with my grandfather uh, and uh, watching somebody go through that. And then I had the movie, What's the Health, recommended to me. And when I had that movie recommended to me, that movie has a lot of um, the hog farming industry in the States and the health links. And, you know, I made the connections right away um, to what I was seeing in North Carolina and Manitoba. Uh, where, you know, Manitoba, we have about 8 million hogs in the province here, and we only have 1.5 million people. So, you know, we have a, you know, we have an epidemic here with uh, the manure and the waste going into our waterways. You know, think about my children and, you know, what they're going to be growing up with. And um, that was my big push, was making a connection for my kids and trying to have, make sure they have something better than we did. And when you started to think of those things, were you still working at that same farm? Um, no, so in 2009, I had uh, met my father. Um, that was another reason, too, I kind of got into farming. I didn't know uh, my father growing up, and my mom had left me when I was 13 uh, for the States. So, uh, you know, I didn't have very much family and stuff. So when I met my father in 2009, uh, he was a journeyman bricklayer who had a company, and he was able to get me into the trade. And I you know, completed my apprenticeship and became a Red Seal bricklayer. So... Um, I was far removed from the farming industry for almost eight years. Um, and then I had that car accident where I was able to make the connection at that point um, to what was going on 
uh, with our food industry and what I, I had experienced as a teenager to my, you know, mid-2021. 20, we're talking with Justin Ronick, and we're talking about Justin's experience working at a factory farm in Manitoba, working at basically a slaughterhouse. We won't go into too much in the way of detail about the slaughterhouse, but when you were working in farming, you did get to see the inside of a slaughterhouse. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I was. I had uh, been in a slaughterhouse for about uh, nine months. Uh, the smell in there is really, it's really off. Uh, it's like, uh, it's very cold and damp and, you know, kind of like a weird musky kind of smell of, it's, I, I want to call it the smell of death and that's almost what it is. And these slaughter facilities are basically a Holocaust plant and it's, it's crazy what's in these facilities where the bodies are just hanging and blood's just everywhere and, you know, you're wearing a full suit and, you know, you really have to wash up after, in between every break and stuff and it's, 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 it's an experience. Um, something I would ever want to go back into. And it also uh, caused me to stop eating uh, pork after working in those facilities too because of the conditions, you know, um, of being in there and smelling it all the time. How much of what you had to do, what you saw, still sticks with you even on a daily basis now? You mentioned you're now a bricklayer. You're you're away from farming entirely. Mm-hmm. How much do you think about it? Uh, I think about it quite a bit now with being, you know, with, with starting to get involved with animal activism more. I'm an organizer for Anonymous for the Voiceless. So I, I really um, take my experiences and uh, try to share them with people now so I can help um, people make the connections with the animals. And so I, I really try to relive a lot of my experiences now where I, before I would try to block them out. Um, so I, I do struggle with... Uh, PTSD from some of the situations and, you know, some of the ways we killed the animals, um, you know, from uh, electrocution to bolt guns to stabbing in the necks to um, piglets being drowned. Um, yeah, like, there's, you know, nobody should have to do any of that stuff in between 17 to 22. What do you want people to know about basically factory farming, slaughterhouse practices, things like that. Is is there any way in your mind that this could improve or is the demand for what is coming out of those farms, is, is that just too great for the uh, the for anyone to overcome because of the, the almighty dollar? Yeah, I think, you know, that that's the big part of it is the demand for, for, for these products. So as consumers, you know, um, what we can do is we can stop supporting these these industries completely and have them switch to plant-based industries where they could be producing plant-based meats, which is, which which is the trend right now in um, society as it is. Um, a lot of these companies are buying up these plant-based companies and incorporating it in. I think that's going to be the next thing where slaughter facilities need to transition into uh, plant-based meats and create and as consumers we can create a new demand by stop. Um, purchasing these products that have so much violence in them. Um, I think that's the biggest way we can stop um, these, 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 these facilities from um, continuing on. Well, Justin, it's been great getting your experience. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. And uh, enjoy not being a part of, of the farming industry and, and what it was doing to you. Yeah, no, it's great, and thanks for having me on, and uh, I really enjoyed sharing my experiences, and I hope I can help other people speak out that have maybe been in these facilities, because it, it makes you feel good when you can talk positively about something that was very traumatic, 
and you can really do wonders for the animals. Justin, thanks again. Thank you very much. Justin Ronick, sharing his experiences working on a factory farm. It's something that we know goes on. We don't ask a lot of questions about, but there's a guy who would hunt, would fish, and then got to see up close what was happening. I don't know how you change it because it does come down to the almighty dollar. It does come down to corporations owning. It does come down to all these things. Um, is it right? That's that's a debatable topic. It really is. And Justin's provided his perspective. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 